Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Now, in the wake of a horrific mass shooting at an elementary school in Texas, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this past week signaled that the Canadian government will be moving ahead on new gun control measures uh, in the coming weeks. In previous parliaments, the Liberals have made changes to Canada's gun laws, including uh, strengthening background check requirements and banning more than 1,500 models and variants of assault-style uh, firearms. Joining us now to discuss Canada's gun laws is Noah Schwartz. Uh, he is the Professor of Political Science and Firearm Policy at Concordia University. Professor Schwartz, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I know this is very, very early, these very early days and things can change, uh, but uh, someone like yourself who studies our firearm policy, what kind of changes could we potentially see? Yeah, so I think we've got a good idea uh, of what the government is likely going to do, uh, and that's because some of these measures were announced in the mandate letter to the minister, um, and also because uh, back in the previous parliament before the election, uh, the government had introduced some of these measures through Bill C-21. So that kind of gives us a little bit of a crystal ball that we can uh, try to see into the future and, and predict what the government's going to announce tomorrow. Um, it's likely uh, that what they're going to announce, uh, number one, uh, is sort of the finalization of their assault-style weapons uh, buyback. So announcing the program um, for actually uh, buying back the guns from the people that currently possess them. Um, they're going to likely announce uh, a municipal or provincial uh, or funding for the provinces or municipalities to ban handguns, and then a few other changes uh, to the firearms uh, existing firearms policy, sort of minor cosmetic changes that they're going to announce as major rebrands. Uh, you said uh, minor changes in, in your third point. The first two points uh, that you made in regards to um, uh, one of them, of course, was to uh, the, the proposed the gun buyback program, which they said that they would introduce. I think it was the 2021 federal election, and then, of course, uh, the banning of handguns by municipal and provincial governments potentially. Uh, are those significant, uh, or is this more about updating our laws? Or are these the, the, the things, that, things that they want to implement now? Would you describe them as significant? I think to understand these laws, we have to sort of look at the wider context of firearms policy in Canada. Um, and the unfortunate thing, and the, both the good thing and, and the bad thing, um, I think the good thing is when you look at the literature and you look at the, the gun laws that we know to be effective, um, we know that Canada has the most effective evidence-based policies already on the books since the 1990s uh, to tackle firearms violence, and that's licensing, um, that's safe storage laws that help keep guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them, um, and that's also uh, bans on high-capacity magazines. We've had these laws in place for 30 years. A lot of what's happened since then um, has been that firearms policy has become very politicized in Canada. So it's a really good wedge issue. Um, and mm -hmm. the reason it's a really good wedge issue, uh, number one, is that the Canadian public uh, doesn't understand gun laws very well. Um, it's sort of a complicated area of policy, and it's hard to get across uh, in a short amount of time. Um, and also because it's very dramatic. Uh, it's very highly publicized. Um, and it captures people's attention. So it, it makes it a really good issue for both the Conservatives and the Liberals um, when they want to try to mobilize their base, get voters excited. So we mm -hmm. saw sort of the Conservative candidates uh, this week. Um, they have been really excited about the Liberals bringing back what the Conservatives had labeled a backdoor gun registry. And this was before uh, the Uvalde shooting, before the new measures. Um, mm -hmm. And then you see the Liberal government as well bringing in a lot of these measures that, you know, w when you think of it from the perspective of creating sound public policy, there's a lot of, you know, inconsistencies in these laws. 
We take mm-hmm. the assault-style weapon ban, for example. There are a lot of guns that are completely functionally equivalent to the ones that were banned um, that don't quite look as menacing that, that are still legal. Um, so it's sort of, you kind of question the, the purpose behind the, the policy there. When you look at it through this lens of politics, um, it starts to make a lot more sense, and especially the timing of these announcements, right? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Um, you know, you talked about sound public policy, and whether you are a liberal supporter, or an NDP supporter, or a conservative supporter, or support other parties, um, the timing, uh, one could argue, why not introduce something like this in the fall if that's what you believe is part of your government's desire to move forward? That's fine, but why not wait till the fall or early next year? But to do it now, just as uh, today, as you and I speak, the President of the United States is traveling to Texas, uh, tensions are high, people are angry, as one would expect them to be. It really does speak to the politics of it, doesn't it? Just making this announcement uh, this past week here in Canada. Yeah, and this sort of there's a long history of this with firearms policy in Canada. Um, Canadians, you know, if we're being really honest with ourselves, I think we like comparing ourselves to Americans. Uh, you saw this during the pandemic a lot, with Canada sort of comparing itself very favorably to, to the sort of maybe lack of measures in the United States. Um, we see this throughout history. And, and I think that uh, these are these very visible laws um, are, are a way for Canadians and the government to try to gain politically from distinguishing ourselves from our American neighbours. So mm-hmm. an example of this is one of the measures that they're likely going to announce uh, is what they've branded red flag laws. And red flag laws are a really big policy discussion in the United States right now. Um, well, Canada's had very similar provisions on the books, once again, for 30 years. Um, we have ways to remove uh, firearms from the hands of licensed gun owners who are a danger to themselves or others. Um, what the government's proposing to do is sort of making some minor tweaks to these laws and then rebranding them as red flag laws. Um, so we can really see kind of the, the I think, the more political motivations and, and that aspect of, uh, that anti-American sentiment uh, really playing through there. Uh, how much of this, uh, and you've done a great job explaining sort of what we have on the books and where we're headed, uh, how much of this do you think is even a deeper debate and conversation of urban versus rural? Uh, I'm not saying all gun owners are rural because they're not. Some urbanites, um, uh, you know, use guns safely as well. Um, but how much of the, this do you think is a much deeper conversation, deeper political divide between urban and rural in this country? I think that's a really significant part of it. Um, to give you some background, I'm doing a research project right now on gun ownership in Canada, and that involved doing an online survey of over 16,000 Canadian gun owners, and it involved long, uh, long-form interviews with about 80 gun owners. And from a lot of people that I'm hearing, especially people in rural areas, there's a feeling that the government doesn't understand them, that maybe they're being stereotyped or misrepresented by the government, um, and that they're sort of suffering uh, so that the government can win those votes in those key ridings, like, uh, you know, downtown Toronto, suburban Toronto, places like that, um, big cities. Uh, so I think it, it really does exacerbate this urban-rural divide. And I think also the sense of East, uh, Western alienation sorry, that a lot of people are feeling. Um, we know that gun ownership rates are higher not only in rural areas, but also in Western Canada, in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia. And these are areas where we've seen a lot of, of feeling of being sort of left out um, of the, the progress that's happening in Canada um, and feeling of being left out of government decision-making um, and that decisions are being made once again for the East without consideration of the West. And I think firearms policy really fits neatly in that divide and, and I think it exacerbates it quite a bit. How much of gun philosophy, gun culture, do you think seeps across the border? Uh, is America's gun problem 
becoming Canada's gun problem. What I mean by that is, you know, there is, as you and I were talking about, an rural, a rural urban divide. But when you look at gun crime, it does impact mostly urban areas, or you see more of that crime happening in urban areas. Are we seeing some of those uh, issues that the America deals with coming across the border as well? Yeah, um, so, so I think we're definitely seeing, uh, and what I say a lot when I comment on the news and what you, what you see happening, is that we're seeing American guns causing Canadian violence. Um, there's a, you know, serious criminal pipelines coming across the border, um, especially from states that have looser gun laws, um, mm-hmm. where it's, it's quite easy for, for criminals, uh, criminal smuggling network to get these firearms across the border. And this is especially the case for handguns. So handguns are very tightly restricted in Canada. You need a special license to have one. Uh, they're registered. You need to contact the government if you're going to be transporting it somewhere. So very, very tightly regulated. Um, whereas just across the border, there's a lot of states where there's very little regulation, except for maybe the federal background check um, for uh, firearms purchase. And even that sometimes can be, be circumvented through private sales. Um, so I think there's, it's very easy for people uh, to be able to get guns across the border, and we're seeing the ramifications of that in big Canadian cities. You see usually the chiefs of police will make announcements about this. So a few months ago, the Toronto chief of police said that 80% of the guns uh, showing up in Toronto um, are coming from the United States. And we see similar figures uh, coming from other big city police chiefs uh, on this. If you think about, um, you know, how many Canadians uh, were regular marijuana users during marijuana mm-hmm. prohibition for years, um, and how much, you know, illegal drugs are able to cross uh, the border, um, illegal gun smuggling is as easy, if not easier, than smuggling drugs. Because guns, they smell like machine parts, so it's a lot harder for to use tools like dogs, for example, to be able to detect them. And especially handguns, because they're so small, they're so concealable, especially if you break them down. Um, it's very, very easy for these criminal smuggling networks to get them into Canada, um, where they, you know, are causing serious harm. I guess with gun culture in the United States, especially with the Second Amendment, one could argue the Second Amendment poses a challenge to Canada, just based on what you've just described to me, because uh, I think on a per capita basis, the United States has more guns than any other country. And I think number two is Yemen, which is in the midst of a civil war, to give you a sense of how many guns are in the United States. The Second Amendment, uh, which enshrines the ownership of of, uh, of guns, I, I guess that is that that's a Canadian problem too, isn't it then? To a certain extent, yes, because, uh, you know, as I say, um, there's always going to be a limit to the extent that we can control the spread of illicit firearms, given that, like you said, we share the world's longest undefended border with the country Mm -hmm. that has the largest supply of firearms in civilian hands, and especially the handgun culture in the United States. Um, So in Canada, long guns are much more common to own, um, and and criminals don't like long guns as much because they're harder to conceal, right? Handguns, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to carry a handgun in public and have no one know about it. Um, so you can sort of go commit a crime and then sort of blend back in quite easily. Um, that's a lot harder to do with a long gun. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that the extreme, the prevalence of, of the handgun culture in the United States, which is fairly unique and has actually been growing in recent years with the expansion um, of laws that allow people to carry guns in public in the United States, um, is certainly having serious effects on gun crime in Canada. Now, uh, about an hour or two before you and I uh, spoke, uh, Justice Minister David uh, Lametti is saying that perhaps he'd look at imposing tougher bail conditions and longer sentences for gun violence in Canada. That's one of the options he would definitely look at. Do you think that could have, um, that would be a net positive? uh, Or is that, do you think, uh, uh, perhaps, um, you know, is more political in regards to his comments and your comments earlier to me in this interview that perhaps focusing on uh, allowing provinces and municipalities to ban handguns may be, a, may be a bigger priority or more important at this particular point. 
Uh, so I think for, to address the first point um, with the, the sentencing, um, I think it's important to, to craft laws that give judges a certain amount of leeway to take into consideration personal circumstances. Because we certainly want judges to be able to, you know, if there's a repeat offender, if there's someone who's been caught smuggling multiple times, uh, we want to be able to, to put those people uh, away um, where they're not going to be posing that risk to society. At the same time, um, and, and I, I don't think this is what the government intends to do, but bringing in something like mandatory minimum sentences, which tie the hands of judges, um, could result in people who this was their first offense, there was a minor infraction, like there's, there's mitigating circumstances, ending up in the justice system, which we really don't want, um, because we know that oftentimes prisons can socialize people into crime, so they, they come out sort of worse than, than when they went in. Um, with regards to the municipal handgun bans, um, I really don't think that that is a policy that's going to be very uh, effective um, for the, the sole reason that, that you know, if, if the overwhelming majority of crime guns that are coming into Canada are crossing an international border, it's really, really hard to see how a municipal or provincial border would do anything to spread mm-hmm. the crime, to, the, the, um, to, spread the, to prevent, sorry, the spread of these, uh, these firearms. So is, so is that policy just window dressing in your mind? Uh, I think it is. I think we really need to be focusing on tackling the root causes of crime, um, which are, are the sort of socioeconomic causes um, that not mm-hmm. only are, are the causes of gun crime, but the causes of crime in general. Um, these are things, you know, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of after-school programs shut down. Um, we saw a lot of the responsibilities that would normally be done by the schools passed on to parents, um, which for parents in sort of lower socioeconomic demographics, parents that still had to work, uh, you know, uh, in person, um, this meant that there were a lot of young people that suddenly had nothing to do. Um, and, and as we know, when we have young people, especially young men who aren't stimulated, who aren't uh, just sort of distracted, who don't have sports or after-school activities to do, there's a lot of risk that they might end up on the street getting involved in things uh, that they shouldn't be. Um, we need to be tackling systemic inequality in Canada. We know that a lot of crime, especially gun crime, is concentrated uh, amongst uh, communities that are suffering, amongst Indigenous communities, uh, amongst minority communities, um, places like that. So we need to be doing community intervention and work uh, to help really tackling uh, what's causing these uh, these crimes. Well, you know, everything you've said here makes so much sense. Um, it, it is concerning for me when you hear them talking about gun control and, and, and strengthening our laws and all that stuff, when you've just told me that there are deeper causes that we have to be focusing on. Um, are there any countries or regions around the world we should be looking at uh, that have uh, paved the way, or at the very least, or have introduced programs that are perhaps more effective and have worked uh, for A, keeping people safe, and at the same time, as you say, tackling some of these deeper issues as well? I think that's a great question, but I don't think we even have to look internationally. There are programs in Canada, community-based programs, civil society programs, um, that have uh, been shown to be very, uh, very effective, and they're not getting funding and support from the government that they need. We've got the one-by-one movement in Toronto. So this is uh, a young man, um, was started by a young man who used to be involved in crime, Mm -hmm. um, and he has dedicated his life uh, to diverting young people from gangs, Um, and they have not received very much uh, federal support. So we've got a lot of civil society groups right here in Canada that are trying to do good work in these communities that we need to be giving a lot more funding, a lot more money. We can also invest in what's called um, their, commu- their uh, violence interruption programs, community-based violence interruption programs. These are evidence-based policies that have been shown to be very successful in certain cities like New York City, uh, where they were tested, for example. Um, and these are people who will go in and intervene in, in situations where violence is likely to happen. So we see with gang violence, for example, quite often it's sort of tit for tat. 
um, you're, you kill someone in my gang, so I you mm-hmm. know, kill someone in your gang. Um, and what these people will do is they will go, they will visit people in hospitals, they'll talk to gang members, and they'll work to sort of de-escalate these potentially violent situations. Um, and they've been shown, once again, to be very, very successful at removing crime. So I think we have a lot of the tools at our disposal to tackle a lot of these issues. Um, it, it's just sort of frustrating to see the government prefer to use these sort of, um, for lack of a better term, flashier, sexier kind of uh, policy options that aren't going to be as effective, rather than the, the sort of rather boring things that are actually going to have a real impact. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.